0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander and as always I'm joined by Kobus Van Staten from the University of Johannesburg Center for African Foreign Policy and Diplomacy. And tonight Kobus joins us from Nagoya, Japan. Good evening Kobus. Good evening. One more week left on your vacation in Asia, so, uh, so we're, yes. on the, we're more or less in the same time zone, so it's nice to have yes. you on this side of the world. Uh, <laughs> today we're also uh, very, very excited to have joining with us uh, Jeremy Youde, who's an associate professor at the University of Minnesota in Duluth, and also the author of uh, Global Health Governance, and you can buy that on Amazon. I just checked it out. It actually looks like a very interesting, uh, interesting book, Jeremy, so thank you so well, much for you. joining us.
1: Well, thank you for the invitation.
0: Now, uh, tell me, uh, Duluth, Minnesota, you're in Minneapolis today. Is it, is it as cold as it seems? Well, there's no snow on the ground. So you know what? We're, we're
1: feeling good about that. It was, it, we had snow up until just recently, but the big snow pile at, at UMD is finally gone, so fingers crossed we're done for a while.
0: And, and for, our, for our listeners in Africa, they may be familiar, of course, with Minneapolis because that is, of course, where uh, none other than Kofi Annan discovered snow for the very first time after coming <laughs> to McAllister College from Ghana. So there is a little, little history connection, historical connection between Minneapolis and, and Africa.
1: Exactly.
0: Well, uh, well. today we're going to really focus on one country. Typically, we kind of do what the news kind of tells us to do. But today we're actually going to focus only on one country. And because Jeremy's with us, we're going to focus on Zimbabwe. Now, this is also important because uh, Vice Premier Wang Yang, Chinese Vice Premier, that is, uh, made a visit to Zimbabwe, to Harare this week. And so we're going to talk about his visit. We're also going to talk about an article that really summarizes everything that i that's kind of key and important to know about Sino. Zimbabwe ties, and where is this relationship between the two countries, you know, given that Robert Mugabe is, of course, the you know, 89-year-old uh, who, who just refuses to kind of move off the stage. Uh, his relationship with China still is very strong. And finally, we're going to talk about the question of blood diamonds out of the Morange mines uh, in Zimbabwe and the fact that now the Zimbabweans want to sell directly to China. Okay, so let's get started right off the top with this visit from Wang Yang. It was a highly symbolic visit. Kobus, when you see these visits to Zimbabwe and really nothing comes out of it, other than the fact that they had some dinners, they had some ceremonies, they had a lot of uh, you know, pleasant talks and, and really a reaffirmation of, of relationships between the two countries. I'm curious about why China continues to value Zimbabwe the way it does, beyond just the historical importance of the relationship. But what motivates someone as high profile as Wang Yang to go to Zimbabwe, in your opinion?
2: Well, I think the historical relationship is really important. And it's not only important between China and Zimbabwe, but it's important for, uh, for the relationships with the rest of Africa. One of the things to remember about Mugabe is that, he, you know, he's seen as a, as a monster in, um, in a lot of the West, but he's and, and I think frequently privately in Africa. But, um, you know, kind of a lot of African leaders keep paying lip service to him because he's such a, a veteran of anti-Gloanism. Um, colonial struggles. So, um, you know, kind of maintaining at least some kind of surface, uh, you know, friendliness with Zimbabwe is, uh, is I think, part of, 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 you know, kind of foreign, foreign relations in Africa. And I, and I think China is probably playing some of the uh, part of that game. They obviously have a, a history that's going a long way back. Then, of course, China is heavily invested in Zimbabwe, and that's what we're coming to later, later in our discussion, our third topic. So, you know, kind of there's some very big Chinese business being done in, in Zimbabwe, and and I, I'm sure that you know they weren't uh, ignoring that fact.
0: Okay, so Jeremy, where do you come down on this? Was does someone like Wang Yang, who's uh, you know again at the very top of the political echelon in, in in China, come to Zimbabwe for the symbolism to recognize the fact that history does matter to the Chinese, relationships do matter to the Chinese? Robert Mugabe goes very very far back with 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 the Chinese leadership, or is it there because of the the economic interests that are that are becoming uh, far more important to China and Zimbabwe. Which do you think drives these decisions for for a visit as high-profile as Wang Yang's?
1: I I think we can't really ignore the the economics. Obviously, like you mentioned, there's a huge economic relationship between China and Zimbabwe. But I think given what actually comes out of these visits, the actual substance, the actual contracts themselves that get signed— it, that, those don't give it a lot of evidence to suggest that, that China is, is sending you know, the vice premier because of these economic ties. I think in a lot of res, respects, sort of as Kobus mentioned, that a lot of this is about maintaining this visibility, uh, about maintaining these ties, building this, this historical relationship, building on this historical relationship, and just the, the symbolism that goes along with it. You know, China is visiting Zimbabwe. Is the United States government visiting Zimbabwe? Are European governments visiting Zimbabwe? And so I think that symbolism and just that, that that engagement and the, the sort of, of of discussion about how we're good friends, we have this long history together, we're, we're willing to, to stand with you, uh, I think that actually comes into play much more strongly than the actual economic relationship does.
0: It's, it's interesting you say that in reference to the United States, in part because I think the Chinese do like to foster relationships with countries that the United States either does not want to or cannot to, cannot for legal reasons. I You know, Sudan comes sure. to mind, Iran comes to mind, Zimbabwe comes to mind, and I think they represent uh, you know, useful tools for Chinese foreign policy. They may not necessarily align themselves, you know, philosophically with these various governments, but they do represent uh, there's, uh, you know, the Chinese, if nothing else, are pragmat- pragmatic in that. But talking about the symbolism, and this is what I like to get both of your uh, your feedback on, um, you know, typically when the Chinese announce these deals with various African governments on visits as high profile as this, um, they're usually spectacularly large. And I guess what surprised Cobus and myself as well is how paltry the size of the contracts that were announced uh, were for. So let me just run through very quickly and we'll get your reaction. A sixteen million dollar free loan agreement payable over five years, so that's basically three, you know three or four million dollars a year. Uh, another sixteen millions for infrastructure development. Sixteen million, I mean that's nothing. Uh, and then this was mm-hmm. my favorite one: fifty six thousand five hundred dollars for a feasibility study to drill boreholes, and eighteen million dollars for a geochemical survey. So if the symbolism is important. This, to me, says that the Chinese, you know, are basically going through the sofa to pick up some leftover change and throw it Zimbabwe's way because, by the standards of their other deals in Africa, it's nothing. Uh, what do you, what do you attach to that, Jeremy? Well, I think
1: that actually, in a lot of ways, the fact that these sums are relatively paltry compared to what they would be doing otherwise actually just reinforces the symbolism that even though these aren't huge contracts that are being signed, at least they are signing contracts. At least they're showing that they're, they are willing to to engage in this sort of economic relationship to provide these loans. You know, sixteen million million is going to get you next to nothing in terms of infrastructure. But the fact is, at least they can say, well, we are investing in infrastructure. We're providing you with the, the, the resources. Sources that you need to do a little bit of something and again this is something that they can use as a way of saying well you know the United States isn't doing this European governments aren't doing this and it, it, one thing that, that we've seen time and time again in China's relationship with Zimbabwe and with the rest of the African continent is this idea that that we China we're not concerned about your domestic politics we're not going to be putting in the conditionalities or or these sorts of uh, requirements in order for you to get access to these these funding sources and I think this kind of can continues that, that process showing that, what, you know, the domestic politics, that's not what, what our concern is. We're just going to be able to provide some assistance. And so the fact that they give $56,000, like you said, this is, this is basically sofa change, but at least they can, they can say, well, we've got something that's on the ground now. We've got something that is formalized. What else is, you know, what are other countries doing?
2: I wonder if it also. I wonder if it also has some has, has um, something to do with it. There's been a lot of talk coming out of Zimbabwe that Zimbabwe has problems repaying some of its loans. I know that it has. It's sitting in arrears um, with some international funding um, organisations, and that's that rather than sanctions is one of the reasons why it can't get more financing. Um, and then also there's been some pressure from Chinese uh, state-owned organ- state state-owned companies um, about unpaid bills coming out of Zimbabwe, um, or they 're not coming out of Zimbabwe, and um, you know kind of the and I wonder if this was an attempt to to maintain the kind of symbolism of international you know of, of relations between Zimbabwe and China without committing more money. Um, you know, kind of committing a lot of more a lot more money to maybe what what is seen as a bit of a bad debt miasma.
0: Yeah, I mean that does actually make sure. some sense. You know, um, one of the one of the the most important you, you know, aspects of Zimbabwe you, you can't separate Zimbabwe from Robert Mugabe. And I liked uh, Vice Premier Wang's uh, statement where he said, uh, "I did not expect him to be in such good." health and that's a quote uh, which I think that anybody's surprised when Mugabe is upright I was when I was working in Paris last year at a new in, in, in the newsroom and there were some alerts coming out that Mugabe was in Singapore and on the verge of death and he looked incredible from the pictures that I saw last week I mean this guy just refuses to die 89 years old I mean it's it's really remarkable um, so when he says he's going to run for president again his relationship with China is the backbone of Zimbabwe's relationship with with China. I guess my question is, when we look at the leadership of, uh, of, uh, of, of Zimbabwe, and we see Morgan Changarai in the wings, and we see Mugabe there, Wang Yang met with both. How do the Chinese play this in such a way so that after Mugabe dies, they're not left on the sidelines from a new leadership that may be uh, opposed to Mugabe and ZANU-PF? So Jeremy, how do they play that in your mind?
1: Well, I think, you know, to some extent they don't really see Changari as as having much of a future, and I think the uh, the predictions that we 've got for these these next coming elections is that the mDC is really in in disarray um, that the party has not been able to convert it, it convert its successes as part of this government of national unity into uh, broader support that that mugabe, as he 's done throughout his career, has been able to play the situation brilliantly and so so to some extent the you know having this the strong relationship with Mugabe is continuing to, to foster um, china 's relationship, and so I think that china's really uh, focusing there what i think is going to be crucial for for china and and i I'm, i I'm, would be curious i don't have any information about this but i'd be curious sort of how this conversation is happening within zanu pf is what sort of planning China is doing and ZANU PF is doing for that day when Robert Mugabe finally does exit the stage. You know, he is going to run for re election. All indications suggest that he will uh, win election at, at these next elections. But, you know, like you said, he is 89. He's a really healthy 89, but he is still 89, and mortality is going to catch up with him at some point. And one thing that, that ZANU PF has always struggled with, and, and Mugabe has always struggled with, is it's never been exactly clear who is next in line. Um, uh, there's been this history throughout Zimbabwean independence where Mugabe has sort of you know cut out potential successors cut out, cut the the legs out from underneath them as a way of trying to hold on to his own position i 'm not sure what exactly um what sort of planning that China has for, for building on whoever's coming next. So I think that a lot of their focus is on ZANU-PF because I think they they probably rightly see that ZANU-PF is likely to uh, maintain the, the control of the next government. The question is, how much of its How much of a relationship do they have with people in ZANU PF outside of of Robert Mugabe? And how are they going to be able to to uh, to, to maintain some of the, these relationships?
0: You, you know, Cobus, it reminds me of some of the research that you've done and, and the preference that Chinese have with dealing with elites and the danger that that poses to as as governments change and as you know as revolutions take place, as we saw in North Africa, the balance that the Chinese have to to do by by engaging with you know non elites and and external actors while at the same time you know continuing those relationships with elites like Robert Mugabe
2: yeah that, that's an issue I think in Zimbabwe particularly you, you find a situation where the, um, the army and the inner circles um, around Robert Mugabe runs a kind of a, an inside parallel government, and some of the the people of the MDC, even though they are officially ministers and, and very high up in the government, have been complaining that they can't get access to information for example about investments so I think that's, that all makes it very interesting that Morgan Shangarai was one of the, was the only Only prominent person to actually imply some form of criticism of China by saying that um, that even though they want, you know, Zimbabwe wants foreign direct investment, they're also worried um, about labor relations and worried about labor mismanagement. which was then kind of treated very badly by, you know, kind of by the official kind of ZANU-related press. So I wonder what you guys made of that comment and, and whether you think it, it'll, you know, kind of uh, sour relations slightly.
0: Well, uh, Jeremy, you, you know, Kobus did a perfect segue for me because this was my next question. You know, The Herald, which of course is the ZANU-PF newspaper, really slapped uh, Changarai for that comment uh, related to labor. And I guess my question is, Why do you think Changarai picked of all the different issues to focus on the labor one, which the Herald says is actually not that important of an issue in Zimbabwe? What was the thinking for for Changarai to focus on that issue, do you think?
1: Uh, well, to a certain extent, I think it may be uh, the MDC trying to appeal to an international audience. I mean, these are the same sorts of concerns, these issues about about labor and about uh, about human rights practices. To kind of pick up, you know, foreshadow where our conversation is going, some of the same uh, some of the same problems that come up when they're talking about the Marange uh, diamond mines, and the reason that, that 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 there are still some sanctions that are placed on diamonds coming out of those mines is because of these concerns about about labor practices, about human rights practices. And so, you know, given the fact that, that China does have such a Substantial investment in that there could be a, a certain element of trying to of the NDC trying to appeal to this international audience and try to appeal to its its supporters, saying you know we are we're the party that's still that is still looking out for labor conditions and for human rights conditions and and for for these sorts of issues. Whereas you know Zanu PF, they're just doing whatever uh, they're, they're they're not focused on it. So it might be have a certain um, appeal there. It might also just be a way of trying for for the MDC to just differentiate itself. One of the things I think that the MDC has run into by being part of this government of national unity is it hasn't been able to really uh, assert itself quite as much. It hasn't really been able to maintain its separate identity. In a lot of respects, the the government of national unity is basically a ZANU government, even though they've got all these ministers. Even though Chingai is is in his position, you know, Tendai Bidi is still over at finance. But in a lot of respects, the successes that have have accumulated to this government are seen as ZANU PF successes. So this is also a way of trying to uh, for the MDC to try to, you know, stake its claim as we are still distinct. We're not just we're not just rolling over. We're not just becoming part of ZANU PF. We are actually trying to distinguish ourselves from from this government.
0: Yeah, you know, Kobus, you know, to pick up on Jeremy's point, it, it does think does register this idea that maybe Chengei was speaking to uh, you know a Pan African audience, you know, taking a very populist message, you know, following in the footsteps. Of of uh, Sanusi Lumida out of Nigeria and also uh, Michael Sada in Zambia and a number of other places where we've seen, you know, Cameroon, Malawi, these crackdowns, uh, public, you know, political crackdowns, at least rhetorical crackdowns on Chinese laborers and and whatnot. So that might be a play that he's making to a a broader audience. Final thoughts on the subject uh, uh, before we move on, Kobus.
2: Yeah, and I mean, I think I agree with you and I think he probably also is taking the gamble that um, if somehow magically he does end up, you know, kind of re- in real power in Zimbabwe, he can follow a similar tactic as Michael Sato did in Zambia and kind of reverse you know, kind of reverse himself away from, from kind of tough talk and criticism against against China towards a more conciliatory relationship you know, kind of, a, you know, more and more I think several people in Africa have done that and, and Michael Sata being the, the main one
0: Well, if you'd like to see what we You know those comments that were made, both and also the reaction from the Herald newspaper. It's up on our Facebook page at facebook.com/slash. China Africa Project, all one word. And uh, we've got a community now closing in on 70,000 people uh, who are now engaging in this community. It's really incredible. Mostly young people around the world. Uh, so, so, Jeremy, one of the things I hope with your students is you kind of alert them to uh, to this. We've got some universities in Botswana, uh, South Africa, uh, also on the east coast of the United States who have now made the Facebook page part of their, cor- their course assignment. So... Uh, uh, oh, brilliant, uh, brilliant. It's our It's our marketing activity, actually, to get all these professors to kind of uh, <laughs> sure. share it with their Facebook, with, with their students slowly but surely. But uh, as I've said over and over again on the show, uh, about 80 to 85% of the population of our Facebook page is between 18 and 24, largely from Africa. So I think that's really interesting that there's this young demographic out there that really wants to engage, and this is a great place to do it. So check it out at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. We've got the herald article uh that says uh from and also the comments from morgan Changrai. so let's now step back a little bit uh, away from the news of the week and look at the broader relationship between zimbabwe and and china and and the reason why we were so excited to have uh, jeremy on the show is because he wrote an article that caught our attention in world politics review which is uh is it an academic journal jeremy it seems like a quasi-academic journal somewhat of a magazine uh how would you describe world politics review
1: I think it kind of it skirts that line between popular press and academic press, where it seems like a lot of the authors are coming from an academic background, but it's really geared towards non-specialist audiences. So you get folks who are writing, um, who are, you know, writing somewhere in the neighborhood of about 3,000 word articles, but are able to combine some of the, the current events, but also combine some of their, their academic expertise at, in a way of trying to make this something that is accessible, a little to, more accessible. to a general audience. Well, you can um, buy so it in
0: Barnes get... and Noble, so that's why it kind of you know crosses that exactly. line. Exactly. You know, and so, yeah. well, you wrote this article called The Active Pariahs Zimbabwe's Look East Policy. Now, one of the things that's interesting to look at, and we re- we touched on this in the first subject, is this, this there's a, a blog of countries and we can go through them, you know, Sudan, Iran, uh, you know, Syria for a while, Venezuela, who are on the U.S. kind of bad list. And the U.S. has done a, you know done its best to try and isolate these countries. Uh, Zimbabwe has really not been as much, you know, focus of the U.S. As, as the U.K. and Europe and the European Union, who have really cracked down on, on Zimbabwe for its human rights abuses and whatnot. So in response, um, these countries, and Zimbabwe being no exception, have turned to China and have turned to Asia, where, as we mentioned before, beforehand you know the you know china and not just china but other asian countries aren't as concerned about the human rights and the social policies and they're not as concerned about governance and transparency so they'll continue to do business so jeremy looking at this look east policy how would you describe kind of for for people who are not familiar with it what is it and what's the context behind it
1: Sure. So I think we can kind of look at the, the lookies policy on two different levels. Um, on the one level, there, it's a very pragmatic response. You know, the, the U.S., the EU, Australia, a number of other countries have imposed sanctions against Zimbabwe, Excuse me, largely from about 2000 on, after we started to see the seizure of the commercial farms by the war veterans in Zimbabwe. Um, with the, the introduction of sanctions, that closed off a lot of markets that um, – that Zimbabwe had previously relied on. So may there's a certain pragmatism.
0: May that. I just stop you there very quickly? And when you talk about the seizure of the farms, those were the seizure of the farms that were owned by white families and white farm owners that then the the, the veterans took over, correct?
1: Right. Yep, absolutely. Okay. Um, and so... So, so there was a cutoff of, the, of certain markets that Zimbabwe had relied on. So there's a certain pragmatism to turning to China, turning to uh, Venezuela, turning to these other countries that that were saying, you know what, we're not going to be so uh, so concerned about what's happening domestically. We're still going to be able to still we'll still be willing to trade with you. So there's a pragmatic level. Like these are countries that will still trade with with countries like Zimbabwe. On the uh, the way that, that that Mugabe likes to present this look East policy, though. Uh, puts it on this other level where it's more about this ideological veneer to it. Now, Zimbabwe and, and, and Robert Mugabe himself like to talk about how this "Look East" policy is that it's not about the, the the economic pragmatism, but that it's about creating this sort of alternative structure, fighting against Western imperialism, fighting against this sort of these sort of neo-colonial structures. This is what the what Mugabe and and his cohorts uh, like to, to charge that that that's really what's behind what the U.S., what the U.K. and other countries are trying to do. That's this it's this neo-colonialism that these countries just want to get, gain access access to the materials, and they're trying to weaken Zimbabwe through these sanctions. Mugabe likes to portray uh, the East policy and his relations with China as, you know, here's a chance for us to show that we basically don't need you, and that we are going to be fighting back against this, this sort of Western hegemony that just wants to, to set out to, uh, to weaken us, and that these countries that we are trading with they have similar histories to us they've been able to develop in a way that hasn't relied on the West for doing it and so we're all kind of in this together we're doing this alternative economic block essentially now it's important on this ideological level it's important to emphasize that even though that's one of the things that Mugabe likes to talk about that's really not the sort of rhetoric that we tend to see coming out of China when we're you know when China talks about the relationship with Zimbabwe it tends to be you know oh we're friends we know it's a good economic opportunity these sorts of things but um the the rhetoric about this sort of ideological affinity tends not to come out of the chinese side of things but it does tend to play into what uh mugabe talks about and what members of zanu pf talk about in terms of the importance of the look east policy and why they decide to, to 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 look east essentially
0: so it's kind of like you know a guy and a girl and the girl says uh, you know the guy says oh we're dating and the girl says no we're just friends Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, so uh let, let's uh you know, again I can't take this show too seriously so we have to <laughs> add a little bit if you were doing COVID, you know. Um <laughs> You, my reading of Zimbabwe, and again I, I come from this from a very you know superficial view is that it 's nothing short of a pathetic basket case I mean uh, they took one of the most uh, agriculturally uh, productive uh, countries and regions in the world, and with the the, the takeover of the farms i 'm not saying that you know it was right for those white landowners to have the land, but uh, those white landowners were uh, you know, extraordinarily efficient at managing the land and producing output that has now led the economy into um, Into nothing short of a tailspin. Uh, So he may say, you know, Mugabe may say the fact that there is uh, some sustainability that comes from the fact that they are fighting this this neocolonial bulwark and and they are fighting against, you know, the evil imperialism of the West. But it, it doesn't seem to be working, at least on the ground in Zimbabwe.
2: I think the economy has come back a little bit since, you know, since, since the kind of crisis of the mid-2000s. But, I mean, that you also have to then, you know, see in context that it came back from having, you know, an inflation rate of like 5,000%, you know. Um, so that, you know, that, <laughs> that has to be, you know, taken with a grain of salt. But, um, you know, kind of it's looking a little bit better. As far as I understand from friends of mine who are Zimbabwean, they're saying that, for example, you know, in the, a few years ago, the supermarket were completely empty, now the economy is running, it feels more normal. Um... But at the same time, um, I think one shouldn't also underestimate the kind of uh, kind of ideological and, and emotional power that's, that that particularly Mugabe still has um, in Southern Africa. So, for example, it's been very hard for Southern African countries to criticize Mugabe. Um, you know, kind of both Botswana and uh, South Africa has been really slapped back by by um, by Mugabe um, for you know for re- quite mild criticism um, and the very. The fact that Mugabe has the power to, to kind of cow these countries simply through, through accusing them, for example, of, of selling out the anti-colonial struggle, that shows the kind of emotional power he still has. At the same time, um, for example, recently in South Africa, um, the South African uh, Democratic Teachers Union, which is the biggest teacher union um, in South Africa, had this meeting, and where where they where they um, came to the conclusion that the biggest threat against southern Africa now is international imperialism from former colonial countries um you know and you know which is pure Mugabe kind of rhetoric you know so the the, the rhetoric has legs of its own um, and you know and and I think that makes it hard to, when you look from the outside to to, to understand why why someone that, that kind of managed to run one of the, as, as you said, one of the you know the the, the best agricultural economies into the ground. Why is still in power and why is still respected? But some how oh, he is.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. Now, just taking a look at, at China trade with Zimbabwe, uh, in 2011, it was $800 million per year, and that was up sharply from 2010. I didn't have 2012 figures available. I don't know, Jeremy, if you have any figures on that. Uh, the Chamber of Chinese Enterprises has 53 members that employ over 1,200 employees. So there is a presence there. Uh, but I, I guess when we talk, when we hear Mugabe talk about all this, you know, neocolonialism, imperialism rhetoric, does anybody really take that seriously, particularly in Beijing? Or do they look at this as a pragmatic, and again, what we talked about earlier, as a geopolitical relationship that's important for them to establish a base in in southern Africa, as they have in other countries in the region?
1: it doesn't seem that anyone in Beijing is really taking it all that seriously it's the, the the sort of neocolonial rhetoric but I it's sort of in line with this idea about how we're not getting involved in the domestic politics they seem to be fine with you know if this is how you want to sell it then knock yourself out you know we're not <laughs> going to get involved with it you know the more power to you because we never see we never see the the government officials from China slapping this down we never see them them challenging this rhetoric they seem to be perfectly fine with the rhetoric so long as as the, the access that, that they want is, is is continuing. So I think that you know they they are they're taking this sort of pragmatic approach. That you know what if this is, we're, we're fine with this. If this is how you want to sell it, that's great. You okay. know, so long as it's not getting in the way of any contracts or anything like that, we're fine.
0: Okay. So on the surface, then, uh, it appears that Mugabe has outdone the West and the Lukes policy is a su- success. But in your article, you say that the tangible benefits are questionable. Explain that. Well, I think
1: this, and this is something that, that we've seen coming out in recent weeks and recent months with some some controversies over some of the data that's coming out of Chinese investments in Africa. Um, there is, you know, there, there's a big, there, there seems to be a big difference between some of the the big splashy press announcements that get made and then what's actually happening on the ground. So um, there was a report that came out in, the newspaper, in a newspaper in 2012 about a $1.2 billion uh, high-speed uh, rail investment that that China was going to be was going to be making in Zimbabwe and then someone went and asked someone from China Railways about this and they had no idea what was going on Um, and there 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 have been similar sorts of things where we've seen these massive projects that are being highlighted or being being celebrated but then there doesn't actually seem to be any follow-through so there's some some real questions about about the accuracy of the data and how much of this this is actually coming to um, coming to fruition Uh, And and so I think it it raises some of the questions about, you know, how much is Zimbabwe actually getting out of of this? You know, they're they're getting some they're definitely getting some good uh, PR. They're definitely getting some some good uh, press coverage from it. But we're not it's not sure if all that money is actually then coming into Zimbabwe, or if it is coming in, how much of it is coming into, uh, into uh, the, the public purse versus going into, the, the, the say, the pockets of private individuals or highly placed government, uh, government officials. Mm-hmm. And that's always been, been part of the question about China's relationship with Zimbabwe, is how much of this is actually for the country and how much of this is about keeping the right people happy and making sure that they've got a little bit of extra change walking around in their pocket.
0: You, you know, Cobus, I wonder if Look East is really a, a not a good way of describing this policy in part because uh, they're looking to Iran, they're looking to Venezuela. So it's not just China that's part of this policy. It's, it's a number of different countries that, again, are in this club that are opposed to the United States and the European Union. And so it just in some ways, as you look at the, the effectiveness of sanctions, uh, this is yet another example of how you know sanctions did do not work and i think unfortunately still in the minds of people is the south africa sanctions campaign that everybody credits for bringing down the apartheid government and they think that it can still be effective but sanctions have you know mugabe doesn't seem to be uh you know he looks great he looks like he's happy he's smiling he's doing you know as jeremy pointed out not too bad you know maybe not great but not too bad what are your thoughts on that copas
2: yeah, I completely agree with you. I have a lot of problems with sanctions. Um, and I'm actually busy, um, you know, kind of working on a paper about that very issue about how successful the sanctions against South Africa actually were, particularly in, 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 cert- in certain fields. Um, and you know, kind of, I have a lot of problems with sanctions generally, but I think um, I think also, you know, kind of, the, there's a lot of lip service being being paid to sanctions against Zimbabwe, both from the West and from Zimbabwe. So Zimbabwe obviously gets a lot of, as as, as Jeremy pointed out, Zimbabwe gets a lot of leverage from this idea that they're under siege from the West. But when you actually look at trade uh, trade figures, what you realise is that the top three kind of top top three kind of uh, groups that, that Zimbabwe trade. With is China, South Africa, which is very heavily invested in in, in Zimbabwe, and the European Union. So you know, kind of there's there's a lot of a lot of uh, talk about about how the European Union is leaning on on Zimbabwe, but it doesn't necessarily affect real trade in 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 real ways. Um, so you know, kind of I, I wonder, I, you know, I just actually wanted to throw that out to you to the two of you is do you, do you think it's maybe time for the European Union to step away? From their sanctions rhetoric, because it seems it doesn't seem to be helping them in any way.
0: Well, no, but they don't have any other tools to, to play with here. That's the big problem because Mugabe represents a philosophical and ideological challenge to the system, and so the United States and just as in Iran, uh, they don't have another card they can play. And Jeremy, I'd like to hear what your thoughts are on this. You know, as a student of Zimbabwe, w- you know, other than sanctions, you know, and trying to isolate Mugabe and trying to isolate uh, the leadership, as you. Pointed out in your article, yeah, they can't go to the Netherlands now to go shopping, but they can certainly go to Beijing and Shanghai, which frankly is, you know, a little bit better now than, than what you can buy in Amsterdam. So it really hasn't compromised the ability of the leadership to maneuver. So I don't know if the West actually has any other options to pursue. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the, the, the big issues here. And and part of it, too, is that so much of
1: every time the, that, say, the U.K. tries to do something, tries to impose a sanction or, or makes any sort of statement that criticizes Zimbabwe, I mean, that actually just feeds into this rhetoric about neocolonialism and continued imperialism, that this is just more more signs that that the the West is out to get us, that they're, they're just trying to, to to use this to weaken us. Um, but as Kovacs pointed out, if we actually look at the, the economic... Economic figures, the trade that Zimbabwe has with with the, the EU, with the UK, uh, and even with the United States, it's in Zimbabwe's favor um, with those countries. Whereas with China, they're they're very much um, on the losing end. They're very much they have very much have a trade deficit with China, as opposed to it having a trade surplus with with these other countries. And so. Well, I I can understand the impulse coming out of, say, coming out of the U.S. and the the European Union. I can understand the impulse towards sanctions, but I don't know that that's... That they I don't know that it's providing the leverage that they were hoping for in some respects, I think this is where the United States has been relatively intelligent about this is that they've kind of stepped back from the debate it's not that they're you know they they it's not that they've necessarily lifted uh, uh, the, the sanctions or changed their policies, but they're basically they they recognize that that engagement or trying to antagonize Mugabe just further serves to weaken their interests and it gives them even less leverage so to some extent, just stepping back and kind of letting Zimbabwe do its thing and being being a, a presence seems to be working a little bit better for for the United States we see a little bit less rhetoric coming out about uh, uh, about the United States, as opposed to say, uh, say the UK, but even the UK, to a, to a large degree, has kind of stepped back with some of its public pronouncements about Zimbabwe and about uh, making statements that that might look like they're demonizing uh, Robert Mugabe, because I mean he he lives for that stuff. He you know when Tony when he could uh, c- call Tony Blair a gay gangster, I mean that was probably the best day That's he ever awesome. had. I mean, it was I mean just that exact, is just you know, so awesome. into Everything that that he wanted,
0: you, you know, and I guess I'm curious about the the differences in public opinion versus. The, the political rhetoric. So in Iran, uh, we see you know a huge yawning gap between you know the what the, the, the mullahs and also what uh, um, uh, you know Ahmadinejad. His, his kind of rhetoric, his hostility to Israel and his hostility to the United States. And then you 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 kind of poll public opinion, and they're not anywhere near as extreme. They're much more moderate. Do you think that the Chinese get any credit? Uh, amongst the public for their support of Mugabe, or and and does the public also line up with this uh, anti-imperialism rhetoric behind Mugabe, or are they are they also more moderate?
1: You know, I don't know that the public really gives a whole lot of, of credence to what what China has has done. Um, you know, there's, we, we always see some discussion about whether or not there are domestic backlashes against uh, against China, if there are, you know, there if there's uh, xenophobic attacks or things like this taking place against Chinese workers, and there's you know, the, there there seems to be evidence that there are some of these, but how widespread it is, um, is unclear. So I don't know that, that that it's really in some respects, I don't know that, that China's really playing a lot of uh, much of a role in terms of the, the public consciousness within Zimbabwe. It doesn't seem like, uh, it seems like like China has a decent public image, not super, but not horrible. And and so it's, in some respects, it seems like it really is more focused on what's happening among the elites, among the government officials, as opposed to what's happening among uh, the public writ large.
0: I guess my my question, Kobe, is to you is the other area that, that Zimbabwe comes into focus when it comes to dealing with the Chinese is on arms sales and weapon sales, and it's one of the areas where uh, human rights groups have pointed out that the Chinese have have not slowed their arms sales. The Chinese, to their defense, say uh, they are selling weapons uh, for legitimate, you know, defense purposes to governments, and how governments use those weapons is up to them. As as, as Jeremy pointed out, this is the no strings attached, the hands off. We will not in, interfere. Fear in the internal affairs of other countries' rhetoric that we hear all the time out of China. But uh, does this blacken the eye of, 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 of the Chinese who are trying to improve their image in Africa by continuing arms sales to, to Robert Mugabe?
2: Um, yes I think so in in general terms it probably i think it does um, but i don 't think that 's a particularly um, you know it, it's, it's not it 's not really an issue that that 's very widely discussed particularly at the moment. a few years ago, there was an incident where some you know kind of um, Some arms shipments from China were supposed to be unloaded in South African docks um, and then, you know, kind of driven to Zimbabwe. um, And South African dock worker unions refused to unload them um, because they because they they said that uh, you know kind of these would be used um, for repression. It was it was around the 2008 election. Um, So at that stage, there was a lot of discussion of this, and and it became quite a kind of a dominant aspect of 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 China's image in Africa. I think those days of past and and we'll have to see you know kind of how how Z- um, Zimbabwe kind of develops in the next few months. Um, you know, kind of, I think, I th- yeah, you know, kind of, I, I, I think it is, um, the issue is on the back burner. I don't, it hasn't disappeared, but I don't think it's particularly prominent at the moment.
0: Well, if you're interested in China-Zimbabwe relations, I highly, highly recommend you check out Jeremy uh, Jeremy's article. You can find it on worldpoliticsreview.com. Uh, look for, you know, Jeremy Yude, Y-O-U-D-E, or you can look for the title, The Active Pariah, Zimbabwe's Look". Policy. You can also find it on in-depthafrica.com uh, as well. It's there. And it really provides this, this wonderful overview of, of the Look East policy and the kind of current status of Sino-Zimbabwe relations and also whether or not this is actually working for Robert Mugabe beyond just the rhetoric. So, um, so definitely check that out. We'll put links also on our Facebook page as well. Uh, but while you're checking out our Facebook page, also if you you know don't actually go on the Internet that much or you don't have a computer, You can find us on uh, both Google, uh, Android, and uh, iOS platforms. We have our mobile app, so you can just take a look for us in the China-Africa project in either one of those stores, the Google Play Store or iTunes, and you can find our, our mobile app there. You'll get our Twitter feeds, our Facebook, our blog, uh, and of course the podcast. So you can listen to it right there on your mobile device. And I, I know that we've gotten some feedback from folks in Africa who uh, are, are watching that. So we're up to Cobus uh, We're on 2,000 downloads now of the, of the mobile app. So that's kind of exciting. Uh, let's go on to our, our third topic. And this is one very, very interesting. It's interesting because Al Jazeera has been covering the Morangay uh, diamond mines quite a bit over the past year, more than any other international television network. And one of the things that they've been talking about is the hypocrisy of the West, and the, the, these diamond mines really highlight it: how easy it is to kind of, you know, smuggle the diamonds out. Well, now the Zimbabwe government is trying to uh, kind of crack down a little bit on the smuggling, in part because very little money from the Morangay mines is actually making it into the treasury. Now, what makes the Morangay mines distinct is the fact that they have not been certified as, uh, and I'm going to have to defer to, to Jeremy and to Kobus here to see if I get my facts right here, but they've not been certified as being uh, conflict-free my, diamond mines. Is that correct, Jeremy?
1: Oh, my understanding is that the the Kimberley Process, which is there to to sort of certify whether or not diamonds are conflict free, is that the Kimberley Process is okay with with selling of diamonds from Zimbabwe, but yeah, but that there are still sanctions from the U.S. and the EU and other countries that are saying we're not satisfied. But that is they it are. this
0: particular mine, the Moringe mine? Is there anything unique about that? It's massive. Okay. Uh, I
1: mean that's really that's really the, the big thing. It's this huge find. Um, and that it's also the, the, the mining that's, ha- that's taking place there Is about half owned by a, a Chinese investment company uh, Or a Chinese investment uh, state-owned enterprise And about half owned by the Zimbabwean government So theoretically there should be much, much more money That's coming into the Zimbabwean treasury From these diamond mines As opposed to what we're actually seeing
0: So now what they want to do Is they want to sell directly to the United Arab Emirates To China, to Israel And to a number of direct partners And, and that's something that's new So this idea that, uh, you know, Trying to, I guess the reason what they're trying to do is to is to get more money to come into in, in, into the treasury. Uh, just to give you a sense, last year they sold 865 million dollars uh, of, of, uh, of of diamonds from uh, from Zimbabwe. It's the world's seventh largest diamond producer. And uh, but the most important thing, Kobus, is that the Marange mine, from my reading, has not been certified, and that's what makes this 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 policy move to try and sell directly to China somewhat controversial.
2: Yeah, I mean they are they, making clear at the moment that they plan to sell diamonds from outside of the Mar- Marang'a area. So you know they're setting up these these um, these sales point offices in Dubai and in Shanghai, um, and they're supposed to be selling diamonds from you know kind of from other mines outside of the Marang'a area, which you know which which still has you know the rest of Zimbabwe also has significant deposits. So I think I think you know kind of that, that's the official line. I think the problem is is that it's been notoriously difficult to track diamonds, obviously. Um, and it's very difficult, particularly in the case of Zimbabwe, um, you know, kind of which which has so many issues with with transparency anyway, it's very hard to to make sure that that this is really actually what's happening.
0: Well Jeremy, if they're able to do this, this would be the biggest undermining of the sanctions effort. And so this really puts you know the UK, the EU and, and the United States into a very difficult position because If they rise to the challenge to try and block the Zimbabwe government from doing this, then they are feeding into the rhetoric of, or, you know, playing right into the hand of of Mugabe, who's saying, of course, they're trying to keep us down. Uh, But if they do get away with doing this, or if they are allowed and permitted to sell mine, to sell their diamonds directly to China, well, then what's the point of the sanctions? So this does seem to point, uh, to put the, the West into a very difficult situation.
1: And I think one of the things that Zimbabwe is doing very skillfully with this is they're exploiting some divisions that exist within the West, uh, excuse me, and within the EU over these these sanctions. In the same way that when the, the EU imposed sanctions against the Zimbabwean government a few years back they were able to to take advantage of the fact that then uh that, that um France invited uh Zimbabwe and invited Robert Mugabe to come to the, this uh the the France Africa conference that was taking place that year and so they were able to basically say you know look there's actually not this sort of, of unity. It's just the UK. It's just the US. It's the, just these few countries that are trying to hold us down. In the same way with these these sanctions about the diamond mines, uh, Belgium and some other countries were when they were review when the EU was reviewing these diamond sanctions most recently. Uh, Belgium and a few other countries were saying, you know what, we actually should. You know, allow these diamonds to be sold, and that you know not only will this be beneficial for the markets, but it will also introduce greater transparency. So Zimbabwe can again exploit some of the, these divisions and say, "Look, you know this isn't about um, this isn't about human rights. This isn't about anything else. Excuse me. This is actually about someone trying to keep us down. It's about." It's about the UK trying to exert its its influence over us because they want to gain gain access to our diamonds, or they want to take them, a well and, take them, take them away. And so, again, they're able to... Mugabe can, can rely on this and show like, you know what, this isn't... You know, this is personal, essentially. That, that, that there's something that these countries don't like about, about us, not that they're trying to live out... Not that they're trying to adhere to some sort of standard that, that, that they are, are claiming exists.
0: Interesting. You know, Kobus, it, yeah. it, it does uh, it, it, just very quickly, it's one quick question is the this isn't just about zimbabwe M- my reading is that uh, it, uh, the diamond industry throughout southern africa kind of smuggles diamonds through, Zim- through zimbabwe to the rest of the world so it's a gateway for for diamonds from say the drc which are in fact conflict uh, conflict diamonds is is that or did the Kimberley process keep clean that up
2: I think the Kimberley Process is having a lot of trouble really cleaning it up. Um, I think they have attempted, um, in certain cases, to do it. I, you know, I'm not an expert on, on how effective it, it's been in detail, but what I, I've also heard that that um, Zimbabwe is a kind of a waste station for for diamonds from the DRC. Of course, the, the Zimbabwean government was actively involved in the DRC war, um, and you know, kind of there, there were a lot of allegations that they plundered a whole bunch of resources themselves within. The the DRC and actually brought it back to Zimbabwe so that also complicates the issue the other issue is that obviously a, f- a few months ago we discussed an article um, about the China International Group mm-hmm. I think yep. um, you know kind of and, and their use of of this, this one particular jet that they fly out of a private jet they fly out of Harare uh, or from Moranga actually I think to and then to to Johannesburg and then from there on to Singapore and, and Hong Kong and so on um, and that, that's, there's been allegations of that is also used as, a, as kind of a smuggling method. Um, so, I mean, the, you know, you. I recently read an interview with Tendai Biti, the, the finance minister, and, and he was saying that he isn't getting this, you know, he's the, he's the the kind of minister, you know, involved with some of these issues, and he's complaining that he's not getting full information from the army um, about about the kind of outputs and investments and so on that's going on in Morangay. So is really is shrouded in secrecy. Um, and, you know, it's, it's generally Seen as uh, you know, as as one of the biggest you know diamond deposits that's been found. Um, another issue in in terms of what Jeremy has mentioned, in, in you know, in playing up this kind of anti you know. The, the kind of issues, the kind of emotional issues that a lot of Africans have with with the colonial legacy and with the, the continuing power of the U.S. and the U.K. in Southern Africa, is you have to keep in mind that the Marange field was discovered by De Beers. So um, you know, obviously De Beers being you know kind of an ex-South African company, but now drifting somewhere above the Atlantic Ocean, you know, in that kind of multinational kind of way, um, and you know, the, the the Zimbabwean government actually wrested control away from De Beers and took over the Marange field themselves. So the Marange field from the, from the Zimbabwean perspective is already being played as this kind of like, uh, you know, kind of sticking it to the man, kind of anti-colonial, you know, kind of, uh, you know, success story. Um, so that makes it even harder to, to you know, to, kind of, to get some kind of real oversight, some objective oversight about, about what's actually going on there.
0: Jeremy, if you're sitting in Beijing and you're kind of watching this unfold, uh, do you think it makes for good public policy to support Zimbabwe's efforts to sell diamonds directly into into China, or do you kind of step back and uh, and, and maybe wait?
1: I think that excuse me. I think that it's one of those those areas where. You probably don't want to be too overly aggressive about it. You probably don't want to be trumpeting the fact that, that you're so, that you're willing to, to purchase these diamonds that may or may not be supporting conflicts uh, that are taking place throughout the sub-Saharan Africa. But at the same time, it fits very much into the, this whole idea about we're not getting involved in the domestic politics. That that they can essentially say that these conflicts that exist within Zimbabwe, these are conflicts within the domestic government. These are di- disagreements between the MDC and ZANU PF over where money is coming from or where it's not going or how money is being allocated. And so what, you know, that's a domestic political disagreement. That's not our issue. Our issue is we want to provide a market that is available for this resource that Zimbabwe wants to sell. So you don't want to maybe be, you don't want to trumpet it too too loudly, but at the same time, you're not going to be willing to, 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 to turn down this opportunity.
0: Well, I highly recommend uh, that everybody check out a uh, a story on Al Jazeera. It's called "How to Rob Africa," and why does the Western world feed Africa with one hand while taking from it with the other? And it profiles exactly what we're talking about, which is the Marange mines and how so little of the money that is produced from those mines is actually staying in uh, in, in Zimbabwe. And basically, what happens is Zimbabwe journalist see uh, uh, Stanley Koenda goes undercover, and he he just it's a fantastic program. It's under the People in Power uh, section of, uh, of Al Jazeera, but it really highlights this. doesn't really focus too much on the Chinese aspect per se, but it really talks about the corruption that's at play here. And you can then understand why the government wants to sell directly so that they can try and capture a little bit more of that wealth. So, uh, well, that'll do it for, for our three topics this week. Uh, Jeremy, before we go every 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 week on the show, we, we try to give a shout out to, uh, to people who want to, to follow you on, on the internet and see what you're doing. Uh, we find that a lot of academic types aren't too big on the whole Twitter, Facebook thing. But uh, are you uh, are you on Twitter or Facebook or anything like that, where you you, you kind of follow where people can follow what you're doing?
1: I, I'm available on both. Um, half of my Twitter feed is about probably is about work things. Half of it's probably about my dogs. Okay. So well,
0: see- <laughs> what's your Twitter handle then for people if they want to follow you?
1: it's jeremy
0: Yude, j-e-r-e-m-y-y-o-u-d-e just one word excellent and then kobus if people want to follow what you're doing where's the best place for them to find you
2: I am at Stadenesq, that's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E.
0: And, of course, you can find me at E-O-Lander, that's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R, and I'm tweeting almost every day the top China in Africa headlines, so it's a great way to stay on top of the big stories. But more importantly, you can find us over on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And for those of you who speak Chinese and who are behind the great firewall and can't get Facebook or Twitter, uh, we have an awesome, awesome Weibo feed that's going, and it's a Weibo.com slash which of course is China Africa Project in Chinese. Eric Mixter is holding down the fort in China and, and uh, he's uh, basically posting on Weibo every day. And then if you want to follow our podcast, uh, we're on SoundCloud, we're on Stitcher, we're on the BlackBerry Network in South Africa, and of course we're on iTunes. And you can find us just by searching for China right there in iTunes. And we hope that you'll download us and also post a couple comments uh, on the iTunes page. As the more comments we get the you know our dream one day is to be posted on the iTunes homepage so that uh, that's that's the the long uh, the long holding dream that we've got so until next Sunday we'll talk to you again for another episode of the China in Africa podcast thanks so much for listening